Hey, Power Athlete Nation. Welcome to another episode of the Premier Podcast on Strength and Conditioning. I'm once again joined by my uh, co-host, Mr. Chris McQuilkin. John, I'm a big fan of your shirt right uh, now. These well, days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I My shirts suck in compared to our guest, <laughs> who pound for pound might have the most powerful shirt collection on the planet. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, on occasion he'll text me, Hey, I got this new shirt. Uh, the, uh, never ceases to amaze me. So without further ado, our illustrious guest today, Dr. Tom Inklinon. Thanks doc for joining us. Uh, thanks guys. Hey, you know, I am on a mission to push color boundaries and, um, I will certainly push every boundary I can. I will put colors together that do not necessarily match. Uh, but I will say it's a conversation piece when I'm, when I'm traveling, I can't tell you, um, so I went to a, actually a, a scientific conference in Boise, Idaho, and I'm walking down a street, you know, it's, and it's like, um, you know, it's, it's kind of quiet. There's not like thousands of people everywhere. There's like a few people here and like one person in a truck by a, a traffic light. And as I'm walking, let's just say there was like 10 people total. Three of those people stopped me to comment on how nice they thought my shirt was. So that's that's thirty percent acknowledgement from the public. Uh, when they said nice, <laughs> were they really saying nice, or were they like, "Hey, nice fucking shirt, asshole"? <laughs> well, Tom's like, "Hey, you know what? Any attention is good attention." So I'm gonna yeah, go I'm, I'm interpreting it in a very positive light. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so little backstory, Tom and I have been friends for geez, almost 20 years now. So it's pretty interesting to, to see the evolution. And, um, obviously Tom's been a, a guest on power at the radio since the beginning. I mean, could have been one of the very, the very first people we ever had on. Uh, but it's pretty interesting to see not only how you've grown in terms of like when I first met you, where you were working mainly with just professional athletes and kind of analyzing blood and doing a bunch of like micronutrient, uh, and supplement kind of which you still do, but really the idea of like pushing human performance from that side by maximizing what you effectively were seeing in the board. Oh yeah. Well, especially the technologies. I mean, so there were ideas and concepts back then that today we've like, we've just literally pushed way past. So we could literally do, uh, you know, 30,000 tests now on someone, you know, from a few blood draws and a saliva sample and if we include the microbiome, you know, we could easily get this to over 200,000 markers in different parts of the body. When you and I first met and started going down some of these areas, that was like, you know, the future someday will allow it. It wasn't a possibility at that point. Well, I remember you took like 40 vials of blood off me, you fucking vampire. And, uh... well, because some of that I was injected back into my own body. So I was trying to put some <laughs> uh, So when I rolled in and uh, mind you, Dr. Tom was working out of his house at this point. So I roll over to Tom's house. He uh, he's got all these like weird cat pictures all over his apart or over his home, and has probably hundreds of half used supplements everywhere. Protein, like <laughs> all like, like still got some. There, there was zero counter space because it was just covered in supplements. And uh, and I was like, There's what is no all this food, stuff? Just supplements. Yeah, just supplements. And Tom's like. Do you want to shake? And I was like, yeah, I'll take a shake. He fucking, he was like uh, scooping this and this and this and this. He made me this shake. It turned like lime green before my eyes. He's like, here, drink this. And then we quick. rolled in <laughs> quick before it explodes. And then, and then this vampire takes like 40 vials of blood off me. And when I say like, it's not like blood draws. I mean, they're huge vials to the point where he's like, well, good thing you're a big dude. Lots of volume. Let's see how many we can get. And uh, like, it, like switched arms. I mean, it was, um, and then uh, a couple weeks later, so, so, and what's so wild is like, uh, like you actually 
the labs were not like emailed to me. I remember I had to come pick up like a manila folder and it was like this thick. I think I still have it somewhere. And it was all of like the original labs. And it was like, uh, we don't have the ability ability to like, it, it just didn't exist in the meeting we have today where now we can docu-shares and there's portals yeah. and the whole thing. I mean, it was just literally uh, handwriting out diets and I want you to take this and this and this. And it was, uh, <clears throat> it was pretty interesting. Sounds like a lot of work as an athlete. Well, yeah. I mean, the uh, so the way I found Tom, and I might have told you guys the story, is I went to Kansas City, and uh, they had me staying in this hotel that had like toxic mold in it, and I got super sick, was having a bunch of problems. I reached out to Bob Sapp and said, hey, Bob, I, uh, I Googled my symptoms online, and I think I have leukemia. He's like, bro, you ain't got leukemia. And he put me in touch with Dr. Tom and said, hey, if something's wrong with you, this dude will find it. And so I met up with Dr. Tom, went out to Arizona, uh, got all the testing done. And Tom's like, you don't have leukemia. I'm like, oh, thank God. He's like, but you do have toxic levels of every type of mold I tested you for. And at that point, put a protocol together. And it was like within like days, if not weeks, like all of a sudden I started feeling instantly better. And at that point. Um, was, this was in season? No, this is right after the end of the season. So they had me living in this place uh, while I was fine. You know, like when I first went out there. And then I ended up moving into a house. I bought a house and moved in, but I was still sick. And all of a sudden, like, my, my play was going down. I, I was, like, strength, injury. I tore my hip flexor off of the bone. I was having all these issues and uh, couldn't figure it out. And I was like, you know, maybe I'm just getting old. Maybe this is the end of it. I'm, like, in my, like, sixth year, so, like, it shouldn't be the case. And come to find out that I got hammered with all this toxic mold. We go through this protocol. I go back to Kansas City, went back to visit that hotel, and they had shut it down. And like the place was under renovation because one of the people that worked there ended up getting Legionnaire's disease, which is when there's mold in the uh, uh, um, air conditioning and it's airborne and they suck it in and they get Legionnaire's disease. So uh, the chiefs tried to kill me and Dr. Tom figured this thing out, put a bunch of antivirals together, a bunch of IVs, a bunch of supplements, and I was fine. And at that point, uh, I was like, you're my guy. And now we've done been working together almost 20 years. So it's pretty cool to have that volume of... Uh, of blood work and just testing to be able to see trends over time. Yeah. Well, you know, to imagine if we would have had EWOD and some of that stuff at the, at the level we have it today, there was like maybe modified versions of it back then, but it certainly didn't have the attention and um, the, uh, the awareness of all the different things it could do. But that would have um, uh, definitely would have, I think, had some positive impact. And so, I remember when, um, so we use a lab called Immunosciences Lab, which was based out of California. And the head of the lab, his uh, name was Ari Vajdani. So super smart guy, can measure like any, any antibody in the human body, published all these papers about like, hey, a lot of heart disease is linked to infection. And some of these infections can come from the mouth and stuff like that. And he's a, he was kind of a visionary guy. And so anytime someone's that visionary and they're saying like, here's how something works, a lot of other doctors don't, they don't have that direct experience and that level of work and with that much, let's say volume of testing so many people from all over the world. So they need like, they need to see more evidence. They need someone to spell it out for them and so forth. And so they would be like, ah, I don't know. And meanwhile, this guy's just cranking out all this research showing all these relationships between like mold exposure, you know, antibody production and all these other diseases. And so when um, or when we sent him your samples and he ran the test, and I don't know the exact number, but let's just say there was like 300 or 400 mold tests, John was like positive for almost everything. And that's not an exaggeration. It wasn't like 100%, but it was a lot. And um, he 
they ran it like three times just to make sure. And in that standard practice, like if you get an outlier type result, you retest it to make sure there wasn't any error with the instrumentation or your equipment or your reagents for calibration. So like Johnny runs it and you know it comes back, like normally if there's not a lot of positives, like the report's like half a page or less, this thing comes back and it's like a small encyclopedia. And I'm like, I've never seen so many pages for a lab report before. But it, it just shows you that there was some serious exposure. And, um, you know, back then, very few doctors would have even acknowledged it, let yeah. alone think about testing you for it. Now we fast forward, you know, from that isolated experience with you. And then over time, um, we've met so many different people that have had various surgical procedures and they get treated with antibiotic either right before the procedure or maybe during or after the procedure, depending on you know, the context of the surgery. So a good example would be like someone that gets um, uh, women that elect to get breast implants done. So maybe the plastic surgeon puts them on antibiotics somewhere around the surgery. Now it's like 10, 20 years later, they got all these weird problems happening because no one considered that there could be fungal exposure or some mold exposure. And when their healthy bacteria were suppressed by the antibiotic, they're kind of more susceptible to other things. And we're seeing lots of, um, you know, uh, ex-playmates and all these, um, you know, very uh, beautiful women that did all this modeling that have all these health issues now. So on the outside, they look like there's nothing wrong with them. On the inside, they don't feel like anything's running right. And so they'll, you know, see a doctor, and a doctor typically tell them they're crazy. Yeah, because it's all in your mind. Find, yeah, they can't find a problem. So therefore, the patient's crazy, not that the doctor just doesn't know what they're looking for. And it's um, it's sad that um, kind of ties into the stuff that today we're going to talk about. Um, I would say um, from um, lecturing at conferences all over, mostly United States right now, but prior to COVID, it was all over the world. Very few doctors even know this stuff exists. So just from the ability to implement and make impact on patients' health, if we're going to professionals that don't even know resources are available, it's gonna be very difficult to get, you know, directed in, you know, go get steered in the right direction if you don't even know some of the stuff exists. Well, I mean, I was going through the whole season, I was going to the doctors and telling them and they thought, oh, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong. And you start Googling your symptoms. And don't ever Google symptoms because it's always like leukemia. Yeah. And, quick, uh, quick question on that, John. Like, do that? Are there team doctors, or you found somebody local? No, there. It was team doctors. And the problem is, is like, you know, they were like, uh, you know, we just think that maybe you're tired or this. And then I go see Tom, and I still remember when Tom called me, and he's like, uh, I, I think the other part of that story is like when the guy called you, he's like. Or when you talk to the guy, or maybe it was an email, and you were like, is this guy dead? And you're like, no, he played in the NFL last year. <laughs> and the guy was like, what? Like, could, like, he's like, we have not even seen dead people that look this bad. And that was the level of exposure that I had. And it was, um, I'm not kidding you, man. It was like uh, uh, like the weirdest thing, like, like just seeing muscle tissue disappear, like just seeing yourself age. It, it was the weirdest feeling. I felt like, uh, you remember when... Uh, you know, the Indiana Jones and the last crusade where he's like drinking the water and he's like, you chose poorly. Uh -huh. That's what it felt like. And it just was awful. And, uh, it, you know, and it was Dr. Tom that was like, Hey, I don't know what's wrong, but we're going to do all, every test we can. And the toxic mold stuff, he's like, man, everything else. And it was the problem though, is it was shutting down other systems. Mm -hmm. So things that should have been working this, I mean, it was just wreaking havoc on the body. 
and that exposure, uh, I think really fucked me. I mean, it, it makes me regret ever going to Kansas City. I should have just kept my mouth shut and not called Andy Reid fat. I should have just stayed in, in Philly, and that would have never fucking happened. But then you would have never met Dr. Tom. But I would have never met Dr. Tom. That's true. So I guess everything happens for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, here we are. Oh, well. <laughs> well, uh, here we are. Uh, but the, I mean, the, the one thing that's been pretty consistent uh, through, you know, 20 plus years is always been, Hey, like, let's get all these different blood values. Like now the testing's way, way better than it used to be. Like I remember there used to have to be, I mean, now I go in and I give a few blood vials and get this huge, you know, download opposed from, you know, what we did back in the day, but it's always been pretty consistent. This idea of like maximizing performance and longevity through really just looking at what's deficient in the body. And I don't know why more people, I mean, I'm sure there are more people today doing it, but I mean, 20 years ago, there was nobody that was doing blood work and trying to maximize performance in terms of like uh, optimizing, you know, micronutrients. Now, when um when I first so in the 80s, when I first kind of got it, um, I, I guess a lot of stuff was thrown at me. I was at a Penn State Center for Sports Medicine, and we had a couple of guys from the Pittsburgh Steelers coming in. And one of my mentors, advisors was like, you know, you got to figure these guys out. I'm like, uh they're freaks of nature. What am I possibly going to do to make these like studs better? And, you know, we had guys that were benching 600 pounds and could run, you know, a mile over 300 pounds on a mile and a five minutes. That's crazy stats. And, you know, from my perspective back then being, you know, young and not having a lot of experience at that point in my career, it was like an impossible task. Like how could you, it's like, you know, go move the mountain. You're like, well, how is this going to even happen without equipment or something? And as I started looking at all these things, the one thing that really stood out <clears throat> is everybody reads stuff and then they are looking at something outside the body and then thinking it will benefit them inside the body instead of just measuring what's inside their body and letting their own data drive their decision making. And even to this day, this is now, you know, I want to say 40 years later, and I'm still watching people make that same, like, so they read an article, you know, um, let's say a new supplement comes out and, you know, how it's got these benefits and they instantly assume that it's going to help them and they're going to spend all this money on it instead of just running some tests to see what they have going on inside their body. And what I found, you know, with these NFL guys was that some of them had simple things like their one guy was uh, low in B12. Then I had a wide receiver from the Eagles that incredible shoulder pain. Every time he would like raise his arm, his shoulder would kill him. They do two or three surgeries on him to shave his bone. And um, he still has pain. And so a physical therapist calls me, goes, you think it could be nutritional? And at that point in my career, I'm like, if he's in the NFL, you know, I don't think it could be nutritional, but nothing else. They couldn't figure anything else. I said, let's run some tests. So after he ran a test and I had the results back, it showed he had calcium deficiency and vitamin D deficiency. And prior to that, if you would have said <clears throat> an athlete in NFL has, you know, calcium and vitamin D deficiency, I would have said, no way. These guys have bones that are harder than stone. They're running into each other. Like if their bones, if they had those deficiencies, they would have broken bone at least once or twice by now. And here's a guy, no history of broken bones or any you know, fractures. So you're not suspecting a calcium and vitamin D. And lo and behold, <clears throat> once I found out he had low calcium and vitamin D, I then ran some literature searches, and sure enough, there's an increased incidence of all kinds of shoulder impingement syndromes and shoulder complications when you're low in calcium and vitamin D. And one of the things we now know is that 
we learn things, you hear stuff like, you know, um, you need calcium for bones. But every vitamin, every mineral is important for every cell of the human body. Like it does more than one thing. It does like thousands and thousands of things. But we get biased visually to the, like the main things we read or hear. And so, you know, now we, we know that um, anytime someone has, whether it's performance relationship or um, I guess health a disease, we look at these micronutrients because you cannot make this stuff. So if you don't have it, there's going to be a negative domino effect, any, you know, in multiple pathways in the body. And unfortunately, the way the medical model has evolved globally, the normal solution is a drug. So like your blood pressure is high, here's a drug. Instead of looking at, well, you have low zinc and you have low selenium, and those are two minerals that are involved in blood pressure regulation. And if we just build those up, maybe you won't ever need this medication. And the downside of taking a med is let's say you took that med and your blood pressure is normal. You still have the two nutrients that are low and you're still gonna have other problems as a result of those two nutrients that are low. So the, the problem with meds a lot of times is they don't really let you solve the problem in a way that produces a result where you're getting ahead later on in life. You're actually going backwards, but you feel stable. So you don't even know that you're going to be dying faster than you expected. Tommy, I mean, is it, man, like I, um, uh, I'm going to, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but I mean, is it fair to say that like a, if somebody is low in something like, let's say you're, you know, Hey, I'm just going to eat a normal diet. We talked about this, that like the, you know, the micronutrient density in food is probably a fraction of was a hundred years ago. And I remember we talked about this a long time ago. You were like, if you lived a hundred years ago, uh, there's a greater chance that you would be bigger and stronger than you are today, just from the value of the food and the quality of the food, uh, you know, a hundred years ago. So does it make sense to say that somebody that, you know, goes out, just eats a normal diet, doesn't get any blood work, doesn't do any of this stuff, over the course of 40 years being micronutrient deficient in all these things, which is is probably a fair assumption to say that the majority of the people are micronutrient deficient just because the food is micronutrient deficient uh, compared to what it used to be. That like now you're seeing at the, like the end of this, you know, 30, 40 years of deficiency. Now we're seeing, you know, more arthritis, more knee replacements, more joint replacements, heart attacks, all these other factors that might not have necessarily been a factor if, you know, the quality of the, or the micronutrient density and the quality of the food was better, or they did something earlier in their lives to, to combat this? So there's a lot of things that have changed over the years. I mean, you got things from uh, just the activity patterns, you know, we have today, they're nowhere near the level they were years ago. So globally, you could just make a recommendation, everybody needs to move more and that will have a significant positive impact. That's one of the things you didn't really hear talked about with this whole COVID pandemic stuff. They kept saying follow the science, but they totally ignored significant impacts on that would have positive immune responses for every human being, regardless of age or gender, ethnicity. And the other thing is, so you got reduction activity globally. You have loss of topsoil around the world. So a lot of micro, we'll say micro minerals primarily that were in this topsoil that's been eroded away or just over consumed, but basically it's gone. And so now the plant products don't have all these, you know, tiny amounts of all these nutrients that we may not even have a full understanding of their role, like the biological role in human nutrition and health, but they're important. And we know they're important because even when you take small amounts of stuff and throw it in a supplement pill and give it to people, 
they seem to get healthier. But, you know, when you put in like a hundred things in very small amounts in one pill, you can't really say which one thing, you know, did the trick to help that person because there's so many different things in that pill. And you get all these changes in microbiome levels. Um, you know, oh, I, I'm, I don't like, I don't say I'm old. I'm just saying I've been around the block a few times. And uh, one of the things I've seen over the years, I've seen like all these um, different guidelines in as far as uh, re, um, research and then how it translates out to how we interact with our environment. And it's something like this, um, you know, don't let your pets lick you because you're gonna get exposure to all these germs that will be harmful. And now they're showing that people that have pets have a healthier microbiome than people without pets. Because the animals roll around in the dirt and lick everything possible and then come and lick you. And that's how you expand your microbiome. So we've gone like, you know, we've kind of gone from one, from like zero to a hundred or one extreme to the other. And on top of all this, now we got- We're not advocating you French kiss your dog. Nah. He's not advocating. Damn it. Yeah, so don't come over and try to French kiss my dogs because they will lick you in the mouth. In a like Vinny will want to French kiss you for as many hours as you can. That dog works to try to lick me in the mouth at every chance he gets. So we're not advocating it, but if it happens, we're not upset. But it's about your it. dog. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, there we go. I feel like uh, that could go down a different direction. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to get weird. Uh, but uh, like there's – it begs to quite like it begs the question. Wait, wait, hold on a uh, second. There's one more no, thing. One more okay. thing. And then you got over fifty thousand chemicals now in the environment, and there's this growing awareness. Like all these chemicals tend to have a more estrogenic component and an androgenic component. And if you look at all these animal models, whether it's a fish, um, whether it's a, a reptile, a, a mammal, you see that there's a reduction in penis size over the last four decades. There's a reduction in sperm count. Um, there's weird cancers now starting to show up in the environment. Like as a general rule, um, uh, young animals should never get cancer. So the translation would be young humans should never get cancer because cancer is something that takes decades of damage to develop. And you should never get cancer of the brain or the spinal cord or nervous system because we have all these like protective barriers that make it difficult for chemicals to get there or harm to get there. But now when you have all these crazy chemicals, <clears throat> there's stuff that crosses the blood-brain barrier. There's things that break down meninges and now gets to parts of the body. Now it translates to, we see more and more children getting rare cancers of the nervous system, uh, more and more people getting cancers of the nervous system in general, and more and more younger women getting breast cancer, like in their late 20s, early 30s. And then there's this uh, you know growing concern about why are, where's, why are all these um, men want to be women all of a sudden? Is it just you know, awareness from the media? Is it just because of chemicals in the environment? That's totally being ignored by, um, like when you, when you ever listen to all these politicians speak, no one's addressing this stuff that's like harming us directly within our own government, our own country. And instead they're focusing on things outside. And um, ultimately that could be uh, some very poor decision-making. Well, the, the one that's just the, the dead giveaway, uh, sex hormone binding globulin, you know, I mean, if you look at the literature, I mean, uh, score, I mean, uh, testing of like, uh, you know, 50 years ago, I mean, even when 20 years ago, uh, I think when you did, when I got mine done, I was in like the sevens, tens, thirteens, and now it's pretty regular when I, and people send me their blood work, like, Hey, you know, uh, I got this panel 
And like the first thing I usually look at is like, what's the value? And, you know, it's not uncommon to see 50, 60, 70, 100. Whereas, uh, you know, and obviously you guys know that uh, if sex binding or sex globulin, sex sex hormone binding globulin, I always fuck it up. Uh, is high uh, that that eats up all your available free testosterone. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, people are like, "Oh, my testosterone count is is uh, you know, my I, I got a fairly <clears throat> decent number of total. My free is super low." Well, I mean, that's the dead giveaway that's produced in the liver, and uh, you know, you can also look at some other things like estradiol and what. But we found that even when the estradiol is low, it's usually environmental. Something else is going on that's causing this environmental stress that's putting this. And for these numbers, I mean, this is uh, these this is a number. That will is a, a good canary in the coal mine for an unhealthy population, especially in terms of antigen profiles for men. Yeah, so that, that ties into like, um, you know, typically you hear like um, health is the absence of disease. And then it tends to happen, people go, well, I didn't, I've never been to a doctor. So they interpret that as meaning they're healthy. When it really means is they don't have no any clue what's going on inside their body. If we look at nature, the first thing to decline is reproductive health. When there's a health challenge, think of the laws of nature such that if you're not healthy enough, we're not going to let you reproduce. <laughs> so you're well, I mean, fitness. that's the definition of fitness. I mean, uh, fitness in 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 terms of like uh, you know biology is your ability to reproduce. Like the fittest of your species is the ones that can have the most offspring. So it makes sure. sense. Yeah, but it, that's you don't really hear that pushed a lot in on the health medical side, it's kind of like, you know, the absence of disease. So no one gets tested or gets sees what's going on. And so they don't know anything's happening. So they're healthy, quote unquote. Um, there's a, do you want, when do you want to switch over to some of this neural testing stuff? Oh, uh, we'll just, I figure uh, we'll finish this train of thought and then yeah. I'm going to get you into this neural uh, thing. So on the um, sex hormone binding globulin thing, you know, there's all these chemicals now that affect the liver and one indirect um, interpretation is that there's liver inflammation, you know, when SHBG is high. And one of the things I see a lot of times is there's, um, there's kind of like five enzymes you can measure from the liver. It is ALP, ALT, AST, GGT, and LDH. And what happens a lot of times is um, when patients come in, they typically have three liver enzymes measured of the five, let's say. So those liver enzymes show up normal, but the other two could be skyrocketing. And since they never measured, people come and say, oh, yeah, I don't have any issues with my liver. I'm like, well, you don't really know. It'd be like checking air pressure in one tire on your car and saying, oh, the rest are all fine. And you look and it's flat visually, but because you didn't check it, you're saying it's okay. Like it wouldn't make any sense, but you could see that. Well, when you talk about markers in the body, most people don't know how many different liver enzymes there are, that there's different isomers that can represent, you know, stuff on the bone or the muscle or the brain or the heart besides the liver. They just go with the flow, whatever the doctor says. And um, what I see a lot of times is that um, people are doing something at a level that's, let's say, uh, less than optimal. And then there's all these things that sneak in on them over time. Um, Like, say, they never measured hemoglobin A1C. And over the years, their glucose has slowly drifted up. And they're basically going from they were healthy here. Now it's 30 years later and they're diabetic. Like how the hell does a healthy person become diabetic? Because there are things they didn't realize like the chromium was low. They can't use insulin. Glucose is building up. And now all this stuff starts happening. You know, uh, uh, the when we went and saw Cashy's endocrinologist, you know, when we got Cashy tested on the type 1, he had no detectable chromium in his system, as you remember. So we started supplementing with chromium. 
And when I talked to uh, this endocrinologist about it, he would, he tried to tell me that uh, there was no uh, basically definitive research uh, that supported chromium deficiency for um, uh, for thyroid function and like and for like 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 basically the idea that uh, unless chromium is present, uh, glucose can't enter the cell, kind of yeah. a deal, and and like mm-hmm. insulin. And I was like. As I'm sitting there, I'm basically just Googled it and like PubMed. I mean, there's uh, yeah, fucking, right. yeah. I mean, it's in two it's seconds. Just, you find it right in his office. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it was kind of like, I, I, like, yeah. I mean, so I think the problem is, is that people go to these conventional, or when I say conventional, go to a, you know, Western trained medical doctor. And I think part of the reason that uh, I've always, you know, gravitated towards you is that you're not an MD, you're a research scientist, you're a PhD. And, you know, MDs work for you. But in terms of like this idea, which I always got a little stuck with is, you know, doctor goes to, you know, med school and then they get into practice and like, that's the kind of the end of the education. Whereas you're in a kind of a different side where you're constantly pushing this idea of like research and education. And like, there's more to know. I just didn't learn it. Now I'm going to go out and, and push what I knew 40 years ago. There's this idea of like, what's cutting edge? How do I do this? And more importantly, how do I solve these problems that conventional medicine is not even attempting to address? What I saw back in the um, 90s was that um, really bright people were going to medical school and they had like, kind of like they're going in and they want to heal the world and save everyone. And as they're going through it, they're coming out and they're just, um, you know, like their their values and their ideas change. And now it's like, I don't want to work with old people because they smell. And I don't want to work with these guys because they don't have money. And I don't want to do this because it's long hours. Like, what happened to helping heal the world? Like that just gets erased and you have all this other stuff. And then when I was actually in med school, I came from an exercise background where um, like exercise was our only option, let's say. And so we had all these people with different diseases and we just trained the shit out of them and they got better for the most part. I'm not saying hundred percent, you know, success, but everyone had amazing results. And so now I go, I'm in medical school, I'm sitting there and it's like, you know, cholesterol's high. Well, put them on a low fat diet and then put them on a really low fat diet, like get rid of all fat. And if cholesterol doesn't go down, then it's drugs. And like, where does exercise come in? And where does the type of fat come in? And where does all these other variables that we know about nutrition exercise? That's established facts. It's not like a debate, like these things work. And they just, well, they just steamroll over it because the funding, there's, there's so much money at every major medical center right now between drug industry and China. Two yeah. major factors that are totally changing the cultural views and the, the the direction that all universities are going in. Yeah, well, the uh, and the the dietary cholesterol, high cholesterol theory has pretty much been disproven that there's no relationship between dietary cholesterol and the cholesterol in the body. So, I mean, that's a but well, that so hasn't hit the mainstream, the regular. Yeah. So idea. what I, what I would say is this though, on a cholesterol thing. Um, so it used to be. 240 and above was considered high, right? And then um, I don't remember the exact year, but the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute came out, lowered that to like 200, and they kept pushing it down. And it came out that all these board members were receiving money from drug industry. And they all had heart attacks. (laughs) Well, but it would make it so that those those simple changes would result in billions of dollars of revenue for these guys. And while they lowered, you know, all this cholesterol didn't translate out, but if, if they were to measure oxidized LDL and for the people that had 
um, the oxidized LDL cholesterol, then we would have definitely seen that there's a relationship that way. So one of the problems with total cholesterol is you don't know what form it is, if it's been oxidized or not. It has to be oxidized in order to stick and clump together. If it's not oxidized, it's not really that damaging. But I will say that when you start looking at diseases like cancer and um, possibly arthritis and diabetes, um, there's definitely some negative effects of too much LDL. And whether it's because it gets oxidized or something else happens, um, it's better to have less inflammatory you know, things floating around in the blood um, in most cases. But, but the, um, you know, recently when um, I have, um, you know, kids come from all over, I'll say kids because everybody's younger than me now. And uh, these are young, you know, medical professionals or doctors of the future. And they're not even fully done with school. And in their mind, they already have, there's no cure for cancer. There's no ability to do this, no ability to do that. So if they're going into something and they already know there's nothing that can be done, how successful or effective do you think they're going to be to treat diabetes or to treat cancer or something? And they already believe that. And, and these are not dumb kids. These are very bright kids, but they've well, been misdirected. Is it because the framework in which they're being taught shows no viable option that, um, you know, I mean, if, uh, if the only model that you're taught has to do with pharmacology and just, you know, drug research and waiting on researchers to provide you with, you know, the drugs and this and this, I mean, you know, we, we had a pretty long talk with the gal who's you know doing a bunch of the research on um, uh, neuroblastoma with these kids mm -hmm. and like, uh, you know, they're uh, like, it's like a insane fact finding in terms of like trying to find these different, uh, uh, you know, combinations of drugs to work. And man, it, uh, it, it, yeah, I, I wonder if like the framework at which they're being taught is just kind of just showing them it's like a small box and they just keep running into corners. Well, it's, um, I could show anyone in the world in less than a minute why a drug-based approach simply is a fool's errand, right? You're going down a path that will never produce a result. We already have enough data to know that a single substance, like for convenience, we may label someone with a condition as neuroblastoma, but if we look at all the possible mutations that can occur in a neuron that have different pathways, different binding properties, different genetic properties, and you know, you got the epigenetics, phenotypic expression, the post-translation modification proteins, you got all these, you know, who knows how many different possibilities, right? And we're gonna come up with one drug that's gonna cover everything. That just yeah. makes sense, right? No. But that's the model though, you know, when you're when you're in that that sort of arena, your message is that we're working on a cure and we're going to have that one thing. And there's a lot of like um, empirical evidence is like your joints hurt and you took some Celebrex and your joint pain is better. Like you don't feel pain or you got a shot of cortisone, you took prednisone and dexamethasone. You could take anyone and in seconds to minutes, maybe an hour, they're going to have, they're going to be pain free. So through life, they're conditioned to think, oh, a drug can solve my problem. Now they're not doing electron microscopy you know, of the cartilage to see that it's still degenerating <laughs> while you have no pain. Yeah, you're just putting a uh, piece of like a sticker over the Checo engine light. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, the one thing that's very near and dear to me, uh, just because it seems to be something that's more on the front, uh, forefront, especially for you, especially working with as many NFL players in our relationship, 
is this idea, uh, or not the idea, but really the the fact of neurodegeneration, and we're you know seeing guys, uh, ex NFL players, uh, current NFL players, military guys, you know TBIs. I mean, this idea of like traumatic brain injury manifesting in you know everything from uh, Parkinson's to ALS, uh, you know, and uh, you know to the point where you got NFL guys you know, shooting themselves in the chest, leaving notes where like I shot myself in the chest so somebody can analyze my brain because something is wrong. Uh, there's this, um, you know, I've talked about on this podcast, I've had numerous, uh, you know, former teammates and friends call me in this, you know, panic state. Like I can't control it. Everything's going black. I mean, just, you know, in some really dark places mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, due to the NFL or the military or whatever. I mean, you know, you got movies about this, but this is something that's very real. And unfortunately, uh, nobody is really providing solutions on, you know, there's this idea that, uh, or, you know, and I know we don't buy into it, but like things that are done to the brain are unfixable, that your brain is not malleable. It can't heal itself. Um, but I think we've through this podcast and, you know, whether it be Dr. Joe DeRudy or you or, uh, other experts that we've worked with that that is not the case and that damage that could be done to the or that's done to the brain can be healed and managed if uh one the right tests and the right protocols are put together but you have to be proactive in doing this yeah so when i was um younger there was definitely the concept that um we're born with so many brain cells and they decrease as we get older so by the time you die you're like dumber than dumb you know, I was kind of like the, the perspective on things. And then we started seeing like, how come there's all these guys in their 80s and 90s that are so darn sharp? Like they could, they talk like there's nothing wrong with them. If they have all these lower, lower brain cell counts, then why are they still high functioning? And then as time went on, we started coming up with concepts of synaptic plasticity. And there was a realization that um, the, the brain has all these cells called glial cells and those glial cells can differentiate and become other types of cells. You, you could liken it to almost like um, a sleeper cell that the body uses when it needs it. And then there was these concepts that the brain may be able to rewire itself. And we now know that we didn't necessarily know when I was say um, you know, 40 years ago is movement is one of the best ways to help the brain to map to get synaptic plasticity going. And um, it's totally ignored in all of neurology and mainstream medicine. And um, we know that we could take people that have very serious um, Parkinson's, uh, even Alzheimer's, um, trying to think of different chronic pain syndromes and just put them in a situation where after you do um, some standard neurological assessments like a Romberg stance, a staggered Romberg stance, a single leg Romberg stance assessments. And this stuff every medical doctor knows or taught this like very early on in their medical career. But they're taught, do the test, and then you need to get this guy drugs or surgery. And what I'm saying is many of those people, we could do exercise. Like literally it could be something like stand on one leg, or even stand with a staggered stance and have a cable coming across the body diagonally. So essentially we, we see where your problem is and then we challenge it with the load but in a non-threatening way. Like the load might be five to 20 pounds. It doesn't have to be like hundreds of pounds. And now we have your eyes closed and we have you do a simple movement like maybe you're doing a shoulder circle so your brain is cognitively thinking about the shoulder circle, let's say your right shoulder, but you have this load going across the body diagonally with the left hand and you, you correct your balance issues, you correct the dysfunction in the brain. And it only takes maybe, you know, 
seconds to minutes to address some of this stuff. So the challenge there is that's not something that produces a high level of revenue when you could fix something that rapidly. So it's totally ignored in medicine because you're not going to be able to imagine all these patients with neurological problems come in and you're fixing them and now they don't have an issue anymore. Well, then what do you need the research center to do if they're already, these guys already been you know, discharged because they're fine. Now that's not going to fix like, um, there's different types of damage. Like I've seen brain scans of different athletes where it does not appear there's any damage. But the limitations of an MRI or CT scan or some other imaging method is you can't go to zero cells, right? You can't go all the way down to the cellular level and see what's happening. And so we notice things like um, tissue compliance and there's things that could, uh, there's things like inflammasomes that are produced within the nervous system. You can't see that on imaging. And so what could be happening is there could be the genetic upregulation of all these inflammatory substances, but the scan looks normal. Now it's you know, five, 10, so many years later, and there's damage happening. That damage could simply be this rewiring. It doesn't have to be like this death of neurons. It could just be different patterns of um, activation within the brain. And now we start seeing things like um, at a guy from the Ravens from years ago, well, this guy played on the Ravens years ago. He calls me one day and he's like, man, if I'm in a crowd with people and I close my eyes and someone just slightly taps me like on, on the back, like behind the shoulder, he goes, I, I, I can't stay upright, I'll fall down. I'm like, well, dude, you gotta come in. He's like, okay, let me think about it. I'm like, you're not gonna remember this conversation. You know, we've, I've tested this now, I've talked to guys and I would email them and I would tell them where to save it on their computer. And it's like three months, six months later when we're talking again and I go, hey, remember that email? They're like, what email? And I then tell them where to find it on their computer. And they're like, I don't remember this conversation even happening. And that's when you're like, well, so now think about it. How is that guy ever gonna get better like he's, he can't remember the conversation in the sort of terms of the directions to get better. So he needs like um, someone else, like a wife or somebody else that's gonna you know, push him and say, no, I'm taking you to the doctor's office, et cetera. But if they go to like a neurology center, look at, you know, I, I give people this example, Muhammad Ali gave all this money to, you know, the Muhammad Ali Parkinson's foundation over here in Arizona. And anyone that looks at him, is that how you want to look when you pass away? The guy could barely move his face. He was so over-medicated, he could barely function. That's not what most people would say, that's how I want to look and that's how I want to go, you know, when, uh, you know, when it's my time. Um, he was so over-medicated and that's, if they couldn't help him with all that money, how does every average person think they're going to go there and get better? You know what I mean? It could just, it's not logical, but what happens is people hear the name and they, they would go there because of name and I never looked at, there was not a good outcome, not an outcome anybody says I want, you know? Yeah, pretty awful. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, Tom, I mean, we, we've talked about this for years in terms of like people reaching out. Hey, I need, I mean, uh, the same things happened to me, the amount of people that have reached out and asked my opinion. I mean, uh, just little things like, hey, I'm having, uh, you know, dysfunction in this. And I'm like, hey, I'll, uh, let's go see Craig Bueller. I'm like, I'll call Tom. Believe me, any excuse that Tom and I have to go visit Craig, we will go visit. <laughs> Just for the mere fact that we get to bust his balls. And uh, the amount of people that have taken me up on that is like, is zero. I remember when you called me and said, hey, we got to go see this guy. I'm like, all right, I'll see you there tomorrow. And uh, just be proactive. 
Yeah. And like, I, I always feel that every time that we have an opportunity to go meet somebody that's outside of our circle and that's not in mine, it just increases my genealogy and gives me a greater yeah. Uh, yeah. chance of success. And yeah. I'll tell you, I remember hobbling into Craig's office and much like that poor dude who looked at my uh, uh, mold toxicity, it's like, you're fucked up, but you know what? We're going <laughs> to fix it. And I, I walked out of Craig's three days later and could have yeah. easily gone back to the NFL. Mm-hmm. And I always think, man, man, if I had met Craig earlier in my career, I would have played longer. But then I'm thinking, well, maybe that wouldn't have been a good thing. So, like, maybe it happened for the right reason. But, I mean, just Yeah, the, because chances are you would have played harder, right? And then you would oh, have pushed dude, your I, body. I, I, Yeah, I, I would still I'd be out there trying to beat Tom Brady's, uh, you know, 20 years. <laughs> but uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the idea of, of um, being proactive, and I think a lot of people have, a, like, a little bit of feeling of helplessness. Like, mm-hmm. oh, there's no way to, you know, there's no way to cure this. My doctor hasn't given me any, uh, you know any lifeline or hasn't really given me anything. And I think what's a little different, at least in this circle is like, I'm not trusting conventional medicine. I'm not, I mean, I have, I have buddies that are doctors that I wouldn't trust to fucking cut my grass Uh, guys I went to school with. So like having that personal relationship, I'm like, well, that guy's a fucking idiot and uh, he's a doctor. So uh, not that all doctors are idiots, but what I'm saying is that when somebody says to you, I don't know, or more importantly, there's no way to do this. That's not the end. That's just a pivot. And now you got to try to find other people. Um, You know, I'm sure the amount of people that I've sent you that are like, oh, I don't know. Or maybe, you know, I don't want to spend money on this testing thing. And my whole thing is like, all right, well, then what's the other option? Like, are you just going to go and not know? Or more importantly, are you just going to go and do something else? Or, you know, hey, I'm going to go buy the CBD because the ad looked good. And uh, it just, to me, it seems insane that if there's a problem that like, like, uh, you know, you call a plumber over to your house and you say, hey, you know, something's going on. I got a leak. He's just not going to come in and start ripping open the wall. He's going to diagnose the problem. Same thing if my car is making a funny noise or something's broken. The mechanic's going to go diagnose the problem. Uh, the crazy thing is that people have an issue and they're almost afraid to diagnose the problem and put together a plan of attack to solve this. Well, part of that. So what I hear from people coming in, mostly men, now I don't hear so much from women is I hear a lot of times, well, I don't want to know if there's something wrong. And I don't, I really don't understand that approach because a lot of stuff, once you find out what's wrong, it could be very easy to fix and very inexpensive when it's like, like at the early stages, let's say treating cancer at stage zero to one is way easier than stage four, way less time, less money, way less stress in your life, et cetera. Yet I'll meet all these guys that'll say, well, I don't want to know. I'm like, you could be, this could be over in a day and you'd rather wait until it's going to be like three months of your life in a hospital bed. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. But what I realize is um, I don't think they understand the, the, the long-term implication of what they're saying now, right? They're just, they're thinking once they find out that they're going to jump to that point faster, maybe as opposed to like, you could actually stop that point from happening. But you mentioned something that made me think of two stories. One is, um, I have two guys that were in their seventies that have really pro- really serious problems with their necks. And um, they go out to see a doc in uh, Pennsylvania, a doctor I met, I was lecturing in Costa Rica and I meet this guy, he's a Russian trained physician who's now, uh, he's practicing in the US. So he does some treatments on them and they come back and they got like full range of motion in their neck. I'm like, wow, this looks really cool. You know, so let's see how long it lasts. And it's like a week later and they're still fine. So I said, all right, um, I'll call this guy. So I call him up and uh, his name is Mikhail Artamanov. 
And so um, I'm like, hey, Mikhail, it's Tom. Hey, man, I want to set up a time to come in and see you. He's like, okay, for what? I go, everything. And he goes, <laughs> excuse me? And I go, Mikhail, I am not the guy you hold back on. I am the guy you build your career on. After you treat me, you will be world famous. And so he said, oh, no, I'm not ready for this. And this is like a big Russian dude. He's like, you know, he's not someone that's wimpy. And he's telling me he's not ready for this. So. I fly out and um, I, I- Was this I, again in the Poconos? Yeah, yeah, there's a guy yeah, in Stroudsburg around that area. Yeah, yeah. So um, I go out there and I'm, I told him, you know, all the shit I wanted to do. So he's like, there's no way I could do all this and see other patients. So he's literally got like his whole caseload for the day is just my body. And he ejected like practically every joint in my body. What I had him do that was different than what I could do like right now at my location, I actually had him drilling into my bone marrow and put in exosomes and stem cells and all kinds of stuff right into the bone marrow with the ideas that we could fix the cartilage surface from inside the bone marrow to subchondral bone to cartilage surface. So um, we get done and it's like, uh, you know, when, when we're done, I feel fantastic. And he had just been drilling in my hips, my spine, everywhere. And um, he, he had tucked bone marrow out of my vertebrae and showed me how it looked. And he did some stuff and shows me afterwards. So this guy's like dripping sweat. He's exhausted. Like, man, I feel great. Let's grab some dinner. He's like, he goes, aren't you tired? I just drilled in like four or five parts of your body. And you know, Is he drilling into it with the needles or is he actually using uh, some form of? No, drill? he did. Um, so he's, he's, a, he's a bigger, stronger dude. He so he's using the needle? Yeah. So he actually took the needle and corkscrews it in. Oh God! And it's um, so the thing about it sounds you know, fucking awful. And the it, fact it, that you're like, I didn't feel anything, just means yeah. that you're fucking dead inside. Nah, I, well, he did say he did say that he thinks there's something wrong with me, and he didn't mean physically. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just tell you this: so after I had my knee surgery, uh, Tom hooked me up with Doctor Parita, and he was doing the uh, um, the deal. <laughs> That's another where character. He, yeah, he was uh, aspirating marrow out of the hip, spinning it down. Then he was injecting it back into my knee. And so as I go in, he's, I'm going through the consult. And he's like, yeah, I got to aspirate your hip. And I just kind of blew it off like I didn't really know what aspirating the hip was. So as I go lay down, all of a sudden, he's like injected my back with all these like uh, kind of numbing agents, like a lidocaine, novocaine deal. And all of a sudden, I see him like pull this box out. And then I see him take like a stake. And I look <laughs> over my shoulder and he has a hammer. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he was fucking, when aspirating the hip means he had to like literally take this thing and stake and break through the hip to be able to draw the marrow out. So the problem is uh, I have abnormally hard bones. Like I have like insane bone density. Just, I mean, you think of Wolf's Law and the whole deal of the impacts in the NFL and lifting weights and then just like, just everything else, like abnormally thick. So this dude literally takes like seven strikes to try to break through my fucking hip bone to get this thing out. And he hits me once and uh, you know, he's used to working on like old people where he taps them and it breaks. Yeah. He's fucking literally like Thor trying to drive this hammer through and like, you know, Ben Helsing yeah. and finally that like, cracks through, draws this thing out. And he's like, <sighs> he like, just like <laughs> takes his thing. And I'm like, fuck. And then I, I call Tom and I'm like, Jesus, you could have warned me about the aspirating of the hip. And Tom's like, what do you mean? That didn't even hurt. I'm like, dude, the guy fucking staked me like a vampire, you fucking asshole. Like, that's information that you need to tell me before I go and have somebody aspirate my hip. So, so okay. So, I went to the same experience. And this guy, so if you, so we had um, doctors recording the procedure because at that point, I'd never seen anything like this done. 
And imagine it looks like you're staking a vampire, but you know, you're face down. So then instead of getting stuck, like in the heart, it looks like you're getting stuck in the butt or something, but he's got this trochanter and he's got this mallet. He's like, bam, bam. So he's hit me so hard. Like the, my body's yeah. left the exam table. And then people are like, so what are you gonna do after this? I'm like, well, I'm going to pick up that chick behind me. We're going to go out dancing tonight. <laughs> so, so it was like, like, I didn't think it was that bad. Uh, yeah, and then that's always Tom. Oh, I didn't think it was that bad. And I'm like, I used to, <laughs> you used to inject, injected liquid fire into my joints. No, it's totally fine. I did twice that. It's, it's fucking, like, that's why, uh, like, whenever Inky's like, hey, I got something for you to try. I'm like, ah, fuck. I was like, uh, I don't know how this is going to go, but I probably should get a hotel room. <laughs> All right, well, so then the second story was uh, – I'm talking to a buddy of mine from California and um, he's like, Hey, uh, do you know this doctor in um, um, Florida? I said, I never met him, but I always wanted to meet him. And the reason why I wanted to meet him, this guy treated, there was an Olympic sprinter who had really bad knee issues that no one was able to help. And I wanted to try to work on that guy's knees, but we couldn't connect. And I found out he goes see this guy in Miami and he winds up, uh will medal in the olympics so whatever was wrong with his knees this guy was able to fix so i wanted to meet the doctor just to discuss like what was your approach what was your strategy but just the timing and traveling and everything was really difficult so i'm talking to my buddy in california and all of a sudden he sends a text and i'm on the phone with this guy from florida and we start talking and kind of to your point mentioned earlier um he's like yeah i definitely have some ideas i think will help you i said great i'll be there tomorrow <laughs> and he's like, uh, I don't think I could move that fast. I was like, well, I thought you could help me. <laughs> so he's like, I can, but like, maybe I need a week or two. So it's, uh, this would, I guess this was last year. Shit, man, time goes by. So uh, the only day he could see me uh, was a Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And I said, I'm not going to come all the way across the country for one day how about we get two days out of this? So that way it justifies the time and travel and everything. So he says, okay, I'll see you Wednesday and Friday. I said, the only problem now is I got to sell my family on this whole concept that, hey, we're all going to meet in Miami for Thanksgiving and the turkey in Miami tastes better than the turkey where you're coming from. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, we winded up, uh, meet my family in, um, in Florida and this guy was, um, what I really liked about his approach is most of the docs before I met with him, when they would inject like your shoulder, your hip, they would do one entry point. And I'd always said, well, if there's like bone spurs and there's like say other cartilage erosion in the joint, you may have like micro compartments and a single entry point. I don't know if that's good enough to get everywhere that needs to have repair. It would make more sense to me to have like, you approach it from, let's say, the shoulder interior and maybe posterior, or maybe three different perspectives. So that way, if you have stuff being injected from three different directions, you increase the likelihood to get enough surface area coverage to actually make some impact. So as I start talking with him, he goes, that's all I do. And I go, he goes, I inject it from every angle possible. So I had him treat, um, inject both knees, both hips, both shoulders, both elbows, up and down my spine. And so we get done. That was Wednesday. Um, Thursday, I couldn't move. <laughs> like I was really like so stiff and swollen and I had made all these dinner plans. So I have to literally hobble down a hotel, go to dinner, could barely sit down. And then I had to get treatment again Friday. 
So by Saturday, I was really swollen and stiff and inflamed. He was treating the same joints on Friday and some new joints I just did on Wednesday. So by Sunday, I'm like, hell no, I'm never doing this again. By Monday, I'm like, oh, this feels pretty good. By Tuesday, I'm like, this is the best I've ever felt. And so now that, that I started doing that at that point, I did it like he said, do it weekly. And I was like, I tried it, it was too aggressive for my body. So we went to bi-weekly. And then after that, I was like, okay, I, I think now I could start spacing things out. So since then, um, we've now got other technologies that I'm actually going to hopefully test later today. I got a new pen delivery system and I was looking to see. Um, so I don't know if you guys could see this here. So basically there's like a lever and the way it kind of works, there's um there's a piece that screws in. So this, there's a cartridge that goes in here, just goes over that. And essentially there's, you dial in the volume of the liquid. Um, it's missing a piece here, but the cartridge would have, let's say like, um, we may have uh, Adam TS5 or some other peptide, uh, maybe uh, FGF18 uh, or FGF15. These are peptides that affect different aspects of cartilage biology. So let's just say this is the area I want to treat. I have it in and you basically, it, it's like, um, it's a high pressure. So think of it as you have the, um, the force behind it and there's a little vibration behind it. So it actually can go right through the skin without a needle. So the idea then is I can literally uh, help anyone fix their joints. They don't have to be in front of a doctor. I could get them, we can customize. Let's say I run some tests on you, find some stuff you're low in, put that stuff in the vial, get it here. And you can really just like put it around your knee or something. Now, if you had to treat like your back, your shoulder, you know, it might be tough to reach. So then you would just train a family member or somebody, but literally, right through the skin to fix that area. Some what of about insulin? You think you could, uh, would it work for diabetics? Um, yeah, but there's already, there's better um, needless delivery systems for insulin. Like the, the volume there is much less and, and smaller. Um, these are the pumps, they're implantable, you know, so there's better options, I think, there. This type of stuff here, there's nothing available like in the orthopedic world that's even close to this. Hmm. So that's, that's the focus now, but I got all these innovative ideas that, um, so one of the challenges, I see lots of older guys that have massive tendonitis, tendinosis all over their body. And basically um, most of the therapies involve damaging the tendon, stimula stimulating like an acute response and then trying to heal it from there. And the reason why it's done is because there's all this calcification in the tendon. I'm like, you know, that approach has some viability to it, but what if we could just get rid of the calcium? I don't have to damage the area in order to make it better. And so now I got all these ideas for how to get rid of the calcium in the tendon. So I'm not talking about getting rid of calcium inside the cell because you need that for biological functions like sure. the excitation, contraction, coupling mechanism. Well, it's kind of like my knee with the uh, the calcification of the popliteus. I mean, like I have this, uh, like the bone spurs and that calcification from the fluid, you know, yeah. uh, over time. I mean, that's what we're trying to get rid of. Yeah. So this, um, I would start with a superficial tendon, like a biceps tendon, a shoulder first. And then once I could prove the efficacy there, I would progress to like deeper areas, like a glute tendon or something. And if that works, then it has application at least we know on the, the tendon side, then I would start looking at bone spurs. Like I'd start like with an elbow bone spur and I would progress to deeper bone spurs because um, I know it'll work. I just don't know 
what the practical, what the structural limitation for depth will be. You know, well, fucking pack it up and send it <coughs> over, dude. Yes. Anyway, um, uh, all these docs, um, I have great relationships with today <laughs> because they're like, uh, they all say this. Like they one. Uh, so this is like a common quote. I never in my life thought I would be doing something like this. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom just walks around with his own releases. Hey, don't worry. Here's a release. Uh, don't right, worry. Right. I brought Dr. Christie with me. <laughs> she'll she'll revive me if anything weird goes on. Well, and, wait. Uh, <laughs> so this one, the one guy. I don't want to mention names. So I want to get into trouble, but. Um, he was going to do like, you know, like a microscopic speck of growth hormone in my mixture. And uh, I was like, dude, an ant would laugh at that. So he, he winds up, um, I said, why don't you step out of the room and so, go down the hall, maybe you have to go to the bathroom or something. So he, I get his assistant and, and I'm like, where do you guys keep the growth hormone? So the doc leaves, I take the growth hormone he has and I get everything he's got into my syringes. So now the doctor has all the syringes laid out for treatment. He comes back, let's say like when he left, they're like this, this much in a syringe. He comes back, they're like fully loaded. They can't put any more liquid in them. He's like, wow, those syringes seem quite a bit larger than when I left. He said, uh, don't worry about that. Yeah, we'll be fine. Everything's good. Yeah, we'll be fine. So, so with uh, like, uh, you know, we've been, uh, you know, obviously on this interesting journey, but uh, what really kind of spurred me a little bit um, and has always been my biggest issue with a lot of the neurological stuff is like, how do we know if somebody is, you know, getting better? Uh, is it through scans? And like, you made a good point where it's like, you know, we can't get down to zero on the scans and, uh, you know, like looking at the CT stuff. I mean, they can't even figure that stuff out until somebody dies. They slice their brain real fine, real, real thin, and then basically put it with a whole bunch of cultures to figure out if this is a, a, a you know, something viable. So when uh, you hit me up and said, hey, there's this new panel that I'm able to test a bunch of markers within the brain. And now we can, you know, put some protocols together to manipulate those markers and, you know, and then use some other means like the EWOT the exercise with oxygen or the hyperbarics to be a driver to try to get nutrients and oxygen into places in the brain that normally it wouldn't get to. Yeah, you want me to share my screen and go over some of the stuff? Uh, you don't have to share the screen. I, I think it'd be cool. Oh. A YouTube experience for... Yeah, I all mean, of our listeners. Yeah, yeah, then, well, yeah. No, uh, sure. Yeah, if we can share the screen, Charles, make Doctor Tom a host. Yeah, more make favorite. him a host, and let's. Uh, yeah, because we, we can do this <coughs> on the YouTube. So, um, uh, these are two labs that do uh, different panels that any doctor, um, any licensed physician can order to test. Most doctors don't do it because we don't want to take the time to do all the markers. Like it's a lot of stuff to review. Sure. And some of these markers, when they're positive, it's really complicated to understand what's triggering them. But I think it's something that um, everybody should get done. And are these my panels or are these somebody else? No, this is, uh, this is um, just general stuff. So can you guys see the Neural Zimmer Plus? Yep. Okay. So this uh, lab is, uh, it, it's called Vibrant America, but they have a, another division called Vibrant Wellness. And basically, um, if you go to the Vibrant Wellness and go to our tests and then over here, you see there's like a drop-down menu, and then you would scroll down to the NeuroZoomer Plus, and that's how I got to this page. And over here, I'm just gonna click on markers. This is all the different stuff that this test does. Essentially, why would anyone want this test? The test looks at 48 markers that are basically 
um, autoimmune antibodies to different proteins in the nervous system. These antibodies are associated with significant neurological and cognitive decline. So before you ever get Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or some other neurological issue, it could be chronic pain, doesn't have to necessarily be um, you know, some of like a Parkinson's condition or ALS. But before you even have get that happening or, or gets diagnosed, you could actually get this testing done and see, hey, there's a problem to address. You know, it tells you a marker here, and it tells you these are all the conditions that you know this marker is associated with, and goes through all the stuff here. What it's going to do is just say, I think they have a sample report. Is this showing up on your? Can you guys see the neural zoomer plus? Yes. Okay. So as I scroll down, this just explains that the clinical specification for how why they do what they do and the scientific rationale. I'm going to shrink this just so that you get a good global perspective. But, you know, it's 48 markers. The markers are categorized into these different categories here. This is demyelination antigen. So these are the type, this is an indication of stuff that's basically stripping the myelin sheath off your neurons. Here's stuff of blood-brain barrier disruption. This is optical and autonomic nervous system disorders, peripheral neuropathy, neuromuscular disorders, brain autoimmunity, brain inflammation, and infection. As you go through the report, let me find something here. So here's, see so, uh, how yellow or red would be an example of something that's positive. Yellow is moderate. Red is like a more um, extreme situation. But you basically, it tells you, here's a previous result. Here's a current result. And this marker, antitubulin, is associated with alcoholic liver disease, demyelinating disease, and all these other things, Hashimoto's. So once we identify the pathway, now we can look at different strategies to address it. And almost, uh, I've never found a human being that had nothing elevated. Like everyone's got, on average, I'd say one to three, sometimes more. People with really serious issues, like people that come in that are like, uh, have all kinds of shakiness or they have all kinds of balance issues, et cetera. Like someone with full-blown Parkinson's, uh, someone with ALS, we see a lot of these markers are elevated. And what I want to just draw your attention to is, let's just say, here's three markers here. Okay? It's, it's one, two, three. It's three different pathways. The way that medicine is approached, if you have a condition like ALS or Parkinson's, maybe you get put on one or two drugs. Those one or two drugs address what they think you have going on. Without measuring these markers, you could be taking a treatment, and this stuff is not being touched by your treatment and you're just gonna get progressively worse. And I can't tell you how many people I've tested over the years with like Parkinson's where they go, oh, my medication works. And I would say, well, how do you know it's working? And they would say, well, my hands don't shake as much. Um, and they have like, when they take the meds, it's like a sweet spot where like the meds supposed to work optimal. And then as the med levels go down in the body, then maybe their hands may shake more. So I said, well, why don't we try testing your balance when you're at the sweet spot and test your balance when you're at when, when you think you're at the low. And what we found in almost every case, their balance sucked both times. So just because their hands stop shaking, they think they're better. But we actually subject them to like some more rigorous types of testing. What you find is nothing's changed. Like they, they still can't balance themselves. And now when we look at these things here, um, you know, you could start to see where their body is attacking its nervous system. And then stuff that you would add to this, there's two other panels on a neurological side. But while we're talking about Parkinson's, 
Um, most of the patients I've tested so far, I usually find they have some genetic predisposition. So they have a gene for Parkinson's or neuroinflammation or something in that world. And then there's been some exposure of pesticides or some other organophosphate compounds. So that seems to be um, like the, the recipe, if you will, is exposure to chemical from the environment, having some sort of predisposition. And that, create, that increases the likelihood that, that individual get Parkinson's. And as we start to measure these markers, I'm going over now and I'll show two other panels, these are things not being addressed. And so any situation where there's damage and that damage does not get addressed, the problem gets worse over time. And I think that's what is this huge conceptual leap right now between medicine and um, we you know, standard care medicine. And then just what we now know scientifically, like, um, let me see if I could pull this up here. So do you see my Google screen here? Yep. Yep. If I just type in um, keg pathway and then Parkinson's, doesn't have to be spelled 100%. Go to images. And then <clears throat> let's see here. So just kind of showing you in real time, see how easy it was to find something. And basically these are pathways for every disease in a map down. You can see here, homo sapiens, so this is a, in a human. Look at the, the main point is that all this stuff is an opportunity for failure that could lead to Parkinson's, all these areas. Now, if I, someone says we're gonna make a drug that's gonna treat Parkinson's, you know, there's all this potential areas that could be, that could cause Parkinson's. Does it make any sense to you that a single drug will fix all these pathways? Uh, and yet, no. that's what everyone believes, and that's what they're told. Well, we're going to have a cure for, now it doesn't matter if it's Parkinson's, it could be any disease you, that you put in here, breast cancer, osteoarthritis. There's so many ways that, you know, think of it like if you had a building, and you have a main power line coming into the building, you know, that's a point of failure, then you might have, you know, the power to that power station, that's a point of failure, you might have electric outlet in your building, you know, your power supply to your computer, like, there's all these points of failures, right, in a system. And you wouldn't say, well, if I have a battery, that alone is going to cover everything because the battery only will last so long, right? So we know there's practical limitations in real life. But then we get to medicine and all these practical limitations. Like the fact that you can't make a drug that binds to every single thing, right? It just doesn't work like that. And yet that's what, you know, people are conditioned. So most people that have Parkinson's, they put on carbidopa, levodopa, maybe they'll put in some other type of um, amino acid. And um, what'll happen is as their tremors go down, they don't know that all this other damage is still going on because it's not being addressed. So I just wanna give everybody a visual to see that stuff there. And this, this would be the same with ALS or MS and so forth. Now, we're talking about the Neural Zoomer Plus report from Vibrant Wellness that same lab has a neural health panel. And um, I don't think they have a, uh, they don't have a sample report for this, but they do go over, these are the markers measured. And these are markers that do tell you, like, are you on the path to getting Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or ALS or MS, some neurological condition? These are the things like, you know, why would you want to do this test? And one of the things I just want to point out, particularly with like stuff in Alzheimer's, dementia, um, cognitive decline category or space, many people have something happening in that area and they wait. 
and then what they forget, what they what they maybe um, not realizing is the longer they take before they implement some action plan of some kind, by the time like they've it got to a certain point, they won't be capable of taking action. And so someone that they would never trust, they would never hire in their per, you know, in their own life or business. Now that idiot is going to be calling all the shots for their care. And this, that's the, that's where most people wind up. Like, you know, they, they push stuff off, wind up in a hospital and all of the care is managed by what their insurance covers as opposed to what's optimally best for them from a biological perspective. So my main point here is um, take action sooner. If you're not sure, there's, there's so many people you could talk to that could kind of get you going in the right direction. Um, <clears throat> History of concussion, you know, demyelinating disease, and we see tons of, uh, oops, sorry about that, tons of ex-athletes, and they, they, you know, typically when I tell them about the stuff, they go, let me think about it, and they just don't do anything. Well, I think the problem, Tom, is through delivery, at least for me. Tom calls me and says, hey, I need you to do this panel, and I'm like, okay. Whereas I think these other people, maybe you're like, hey, I got this idea, I think maybe you should try this, whereas you, I think you just call and say, hey, uh, I want you to test this. So maybe it's delivery. Maybe you're just delivering it to me in a different way. So well, what happens is... Um, you know, and also have... Tom and I are really uh, competitive, whereas I feel like he's always getting better than me. So if he calls and says, like, hey, I just did this panel and I'm going to get better than you, I'm like, fuck, now I got to go to Arizona and get this done. So maybe that's it. I mean, I really haven't got into the wacky yeah. shirts yet. Well, I, I can attest to that. I've visited Tom a number of times. And he's like, "Will you check this out? John's gonna be so jealous." <laughs> <laughs> and then get some awesome treatment. Yeah, that, uh, I know, I know. He 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 just sent me this PMF device, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So we've been do that that PMF device. Uh, like I like it. I th- I feel pretty good when I use it. So here's what um, <clears throat> well that's gonna go off in a whole other tangent, man. Okay, well let's uh, yeah let's <clears throat> let's go on to this one. Uh, okay. So let me, let me just go over the prodrome. That's the third report and. Basically, Prodrome, they have a uh, they have two different tests. Do the one that's four ninety nine, do not do the one that's two fifty, only because like two things versus like you get a ton more information here. But this is the one, this test here, it'll it'll basically tell you things you should be taking um, that will help your brain. And uh, it'll tell you areas like that are off, like between peroxisomes and mitochondria. Uh, the test is a little tricky to interpret. So most doctors don't even know this tech. Like most people haven't heard of the word plasmologens. It's been around a long time. Um, but this is an area that many people are low in or there's some imbalance between peroxisome function and mitochondrial function. And that imbalance results in altered function of neurotransmitters and other chemicals for the nervous system over time. And this is stuff that... <clears throat> it's actionable right now. So you do this test, let's say you have results in three weeks, four weeks max, you're gonna find out, oh, I need you know, creatine and ribose for my brain, or I need lecithin for my brain, or I need to increase curcumin, something along those lines. And then you would repeat the test in three months to verify like these things improved, but you'll be able to see things like a lot of people say um, things like um, uh, their memory is getting better, or um, I've heard people say like uh, their vision has gotten better. So like normally when you think about brain health, you don't necessarily think about eyesight, but you know, remember the brain controls everything. Sure. 
you don't necessarily think about joint pain or, or digestive tract function. Um, typically, like if your elbow hurts, your knee hurts, you're going right to the joint to look at where the damage is. You're not thinking about, well, the thalamus, the brain controls, like what our brain prioritizes and what we perceive. So if I got some dysfunction in my brain, maybe I'm getting signals that don't really exist. So maybe, you know, um, everything that happens, I think it's my knee, but meanwhile, there's other issues going on. So these three panels could be um, very beneficial for people that have concerns about neurological function. And uh, I've been um, doing them on, I'd say almost every new patient that we can. And uh, it's still like, I don't have, um, this is all stuff that started this year. So I don't have like years of data on these panels yet because the prodrome is pretty new. Um, in, in concept, the stuff's been around in the medical literature and scientific literature, but in terms of a lab actually doing it and what kind of got me um, into these guys is uh, the guy that started this company, Dr. Dan Goodenow, is a PhD. He's a chemist. His dad got Alzheimer's and Dayan just said, you know, there's got to be a way to help him. And what he found is that there's a huge gap between researchers showing like, here's what we know and here's how to fix it. But it's done in a very technical, boring, difficult to find way. And then you have all these neurologists and people you know, practicing in that, let's say, neurospace. And they don't know how to translate this information. So it's like a, like a language barrier, if you will. And all he did was connect these dots and make it like, yeah, here's what it's telling you. Here's what you need to do. So he's got um, like a practical way of figuring stuff out that could actually help people pretty quickly. I mean, some people get responses in soon in three months, uh, but I think it's something most people should do, particularly if they think uh, like, you know, you put your keys down, you can't remember where they are type of thing, might be worth getting something like this done. And then with the uh, the thing that I appreciated is that there was something, I mean, obviously it's got to be interpreted. It's not going to just spell out like, hey, take this, take this. Uh, but it's something that you can interpret. And I know we, you know, we sat down and went through all the values and then put together a, a, a game plan to kind of bring up some of the low points. And, you know, there were some certain things that I was extreme. It, it was kind of interesting. Like I was not middle of the road as I'm looking at mine. Like some things were through the roof and other things were, you know, back the other way. So the idea of being able to put together like a cohesive plan to start maximizing this stuff is really where, you know, the value comes from. And it's, it's going to be funny. People are going to listen to this podcast. going to want to send me emails and be like, Oh, well, what about this? And what about this? And my thing is always like, Hey man, if you're going to, if you want the ride, pay the dollar, like uh, call Dr. Tom, book a consult, do this information and, you know, work with somebody who this is what they do for a living in terms of like, maximizing performance if you're worried about this type of stuff which i like to think that if you are coming from uh you know played college football even high school football or you know or having any feelings of having something going on like you said forgetting where your keys are uh i put my keys exactly in the same place every time when i come home uh if they don't go in that back place i get a little nervous and i don't see them i'm like oh man then i gotta go retrace my steps but I don't know, maybe that's just the way the life works these days. But I think if, uh, if this is something that's, you know, in the forefront of your mind, um, get tested and know and then put a, a plan together and then implement it and see what happens. I mean, that's the only way we're going to fix this stuff is if you actually put a plan of like test it, put a plan of attack together, follow it to the T. Uh, don't just half-ass it, do it 100% and then go back in and get a retest. Yeah, and one of the benefits is that... Um let's just say like, oh, I don't know, let's say um, something was 10 grand up front to get testing done. And let's say 
supplements or whatever the treatment is. It seems like a lot of money, but what happens is if you could stop the disease from happening later on, that could save you for, you know, you have less muscle, you're, you don't have maybe all the resources you did when you were younger. And so, you know, what's, um, what should happen is if people pay attention to the health and have good monitoring when they're younger, their health expenses should go down over time. But most people, it's the opposite. The health expenses go, and even stuff like, um, you know, um, say you got, you know, the hospital, it's all covered by insurance. Let's say you have no out-of-pocket expense. It appears free, except that now you're in a hospital bed while it's your daughter's birthday or your wife's, you know, the anniversary with your wife or something like that. So the opportunity costs of being trapped in an environment you don't want to be in, it totally takes away from your quality of life, your enjoyment, satisfaction about being with people you love and care for. And then maybe even loss of income, like if you're still having to work, but now you're in a hospital and you can't be working. And these are things that you know most people um, don't consider. And so the rule of thumb is that um, the expensive part that most people don't consider is to be trapped at a level that they never wanted to be stuck at. And this is where health can make all the difference because uh, just um, let's say you have no neurological issues, doing a lot of the stuff will just make your brain work better. And now you're in a position where you're less likely to be stressed out. You can make a better decision when you're encountering different psychological challenges in life. And it's stuff that's just uh, not considered. Um, I see a lot of um, CEOs that as they've gotten older, their decision-making has changed. Some of it is, you know, when you're young and you don't have any money, typically have a higher risk-taking behavior. Now you got older, you have some money and you look and figure out how to keep it. You're not looking like throw it all on the line and gamble it all like you did when, you know, you were younger and didn't have any money. And so there's going to be some of that changes in behavior because of uh, maturity and experience. But what I see then sometimes happening is there's um, an unnecessary delay to take action. And what do we know if you don't take action, things aren't gonna get better just by time or by ignoring them, they tend to get worse. Yeah, there's probably never a time where all of a sudden, hey, I'm just gonna ignore this problem and it's gonna go away. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, has that ever happened to you? Chevy K30, <laughs> all the time. No, I'm kidding. Hey, hey Tom, kill that screen share unless you got some more I, yep. pages to share. Um, well, I was gonna. Do you want me to go over the um, PowerPoint stuff? I, I'll kind of go through this uh, reasonably fast. And essentially, um, I started hearing about exercise with oxygen a while ago, and I, I was hearing claims like there's all these amazing things. And the problem was that the sources of of saying all these claims, like they weren't. I, I would say they were definitely not experts. You know, not people would say, "Oh, I guarantee what they're saying is accurate." So. Um, I started basically breathing in oxygen while I was working out, and I started noticing some pretty significant impacts on um, cognitive function improved, uh, joint pain, like it was night and day difference, like when I did it versus when I didn't do it. And I, I'm not talking about one joint, I'm talking like in my whole body. And so um, I wanted up then looking at some of the literature and I wanted to get an idea of what exactly was changing. And so... <clears throat> 
this is a one exercise session. So basically, here's um, uh, room air, and here's basically at rest right before pedaling on elliptical for about 20 minutes, roughly, like 15 or 20 minutes, because of the time to put on the equipment and take it off. It may not be exactly 15, might be a little bit longer because I'm getting wired up with electrodes and stuff to check blood pressure, heart rate, stuff like that. And then here is afterwards, and then uh, that's immediate. And then here is 30 minutes later and 60 minutes later. So basically you're looking at the number of cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Now here is the same exercise uh, strategy. So again, one session. The difference is now is I'm breathing in oxygen and what you could see, and this number here, like this 136.53, day to day, your rest, you should be low. Then when you have a stimulus, they should go up and then basically they should come back down to baseline. And what you see is with the oxygen, and this is just me here, but if we were to look at this and you know, I've done this with hundreds of people now, what you see is everyone goes up and comes down. So what the exercise with oxygen does is it improves the magnitude and still keeps the curve. So like the way that things change is still the same. The difference is the peaks that you reach to. Now this was uh, one session and it basically says, okay, cytotoxic T lymphocytes go up. And now we'll look at natural killer cells. And now here's where you see like, and by the way, you know, at rest goes up, comes back down, this is normal. Then this is the workout breathing in oxygen. And you can see it goes up even way more. Like no matter how you look at this, there's a huge difference. But then it comes right back down. Same thing. Again, like I was saying, it's the magnitude of the response. Now, why do cytotoxic T lymphocytes and natural killer cells matter? Because those are the primary cells that kill everything in the blood that's bad. They kill viruses, bacteria, fungi, parasites, cancer cells. So basically, one of the reasons why you want to exercise is it keeps your immune system moving around and mobilizing cells. So they kill all the bad guys, not just like a few. Well, now at this point, um, I didn't have this. I was the first guy that we started collecting these parameters on. And I didn't really know all the things that it does because all I did was measure some immune markers. There's an 88 year old woman that had lymphoma, um, no chemotherapy at this point when I tested her. But the history of the case is that uh, <clears throat> she had a, a lymphoma that was easy to treat. She goes to Mayo Clinic, they treat her, the cancer's gone. And months later, she has, can she has lymphoma again. And the docs were like, you know, this is weird because this cancer doesn't usually come back. It's an easy cancer to treat. They treat her second time, she responds, same thing. Months later, cancer comes back. And I don't know if she did two or three treatments there um, or had cancer two or three times, but let's just say between two or three times she had cancer. So one of the docs there said, hey, why don't you go see this guy? He's gonna test the hell out of you and, and figure out what's going on. When I tested her, um, I found she had bacteria from spiders in her blood. Now I can tell you I've tested almost 200,000 people over a roughly 40 years. I've never seen that before. I spoke to the head of immunology at one of the labs that did the testing, the actual analysis. And they go, yeah, it's kind of rare, but we have seen this before. The bacteria from the spider, she probably got bit at some point and the bacteria actually hide inside your red blood cells and white blood cells. 
So at that point, I didn't really know that. Like I knew certain organisms do have the ability to hide in our cells, but I wasn't thinking like an insect bite is going to have bacteria in you and so forth. And so I went up talking to the woman and she's like, yeah, two years before I got lymphoma, I got bit by a spider. My, I got bit on the cheek. I got you know infection and then he treated it. So her face was fine. Like she didn't look like, she didn't present like she had any infection at all. Well, when we did the exercise with oxygen, one 15 minute session, what I noticed was that she had the spider bacteria never showed up again. So I'm like, hmm, I wonder if the exercise stimulates the immune system to be more precise to kill these organisms. And um, I will say this woman uh, never got cancer again. She's alive today, doesn't have cancer. Now it's only, this is what, um, a year and a half later. So it's not a long time, but the main point, she had, she getting cancer every few months and now it's been over a year and a half, no cancer. So that's a difference in what's going on. Now I'm going to fast forward now that we've tested, you know, a lot of people. These are all the different organisms that we have found exercise with oxygen therapy kills. So keep in mind now, one 15 to 20 minute session and all these different bacteria, and I'm going to show you viruses and fungi. I even have one patient that the exercise model treated the COVID virus in that person. And so what I mean is I test them and they're positive. They exercise, I retest them and all these organisms are gone. Now there's some limitations in that. Um, I don't actually have anything showing like a, um, a, an immune cell gobbling up or killing the bacteria, right? Or gobbling up and killing the virus or whatever the organism is. Um, all I know is that when we test a person, now this is not all this bacteria, not from one person. These are all from all different patients. I just put all the different bacteria in one slide, but we test you, we find this, we do exercise and now it's gone is basically, we don't know where it went, but what I will say is when I test these people months later, they still don't have the bacteria. So there's no evidence that they have that infection anymore. And their symptoms have dramatically improved, right? So they don't have joint pain or they're not fatigued and stuff like that. Here's a different fungi that we've identified. And here's even a Lyme organism, uh, Borrelia, that we've been able to show. Now, since then, I've gotten data on mostly cancer patients. And we're gonna just uh, scroll ahead. This is a 33-year-old female with breast cancer. This woman is on multiple chemotherapies, as many as four or five at a time. And the main thing I want you to see is over 12 weeks, my exercise with oxygen, look at her improvements. This does not happen normally. Normally, um, it would be the opposite. Like you start out at one point and you come down. What I did learn though, from testing all these people, 1600 is the cutoff. And with that, what I'm saying here, the patients that they get their immune markers over 1600, those people are still alive. They did not die from the cancer. The patients that never get to 1600, those people ultimately do not make it. Look how close this one was. And this is where um, there's a huge gap in the people understanding cancer. Most people think they get diagnosed with cancer. They're going to first Google like what did their cancer is. So it's like, you know, a uh, guy gets prostate cancer, Googles what is prostate cancer. And the next thing they do is they Google prostate cancer treatment. And they read something, they think that will help them. And remember what I said very early on in this podcast about most people read stuff outside the body and they kind of force that on themselves as opposed to studying what's inside the body. 
and then deciding what they need. So in this woman's case here, she never got to the level that she needed to be at to make sure she survives. What she got to was barely at the level. And now today she's in really bad shape. Like she's, she's definitely not going to make it. And what most people don't consider is that they think they're going to somehow do a treatment for X amount of weeks and they're going to beat the cancer without thinking, well, maybe my body was so below normal, like maybe it takes 20 weeks for her body to get to that resilience that she could beat cancer. But she's stopping a program at week 12 because she thinks it quote unquote isn't working when it's clear as day, her immune system is getting stronger over time. Remember, this is happening when she's getting blitzed with drugs that suppress the immune system. The exercise is so powerful, it's still stimulating adaptive responses over time. Um, she's still alive. I don't think that she's going to make it though. Now, here's an example. Um, this was a guy, he was on hospice. So this is a guy could not stand, uh, couldn't go to the bathroom on his own. He's, uh, his godson is a defensive lineman in the NFL. He reached out to me, he said, look, man, my godfather is in bad shape and I really don't wanna see him go down this way. This guy used to be like a really big, strong man. And you know now he can't go to the bathroom without someone helping him. And so I said, look, his cancer is so advanced. There is no evidence that we could um, you know, change the outcome here. The difference though, is we could give him his quality of life back. I'll get him walking. I'll get him, he can go to the bathroom on his own, but ultimately he's not gonna make it. So I talked with the patient and um, I said to him, you know, what's something that you would wanna do that you would say, look, I really want to, uh, like I get some satisfaction or I'd feel some pleasure again. And he says, man, I love hunting and I can't walk right now. I said, all right, we'll get you hunting again. So um, it took about a week so that now he could carry a rifle. Uh, within two weeks, he carried a rifle two miles. He went hunting six times. So during, you know, during his time here, like I don't know which dates he went hunting, um, but he went hunting six times. He did pass away. The difference was that when he did pass away, he didn't need a hospice nurse anymore. He could wash himself, he could you know, bathe himself, he'd go to the bathroom on his own, he could cook and eat himself, his own foods, you know, and um, uh, go hunting. And when he passed away, his uh, family said um, they found him, he had a Bible on his chest, it looked like a smile on his face. And they were like, we, we can't thank you guys enough because prior to this, he was over-medicated. They had him on so many drugs and he was laying, he was laying in the hospital bed and then they moved him to his home laying in a home bed and he's just urinating and defecating on himself. And when we were done with him, the disease had still progressed, but he was able to go to the bathroom on his own and have to maintain his dignity. And that's one of the things that's totally lost right now in, in healthcare. And so um, I realized our focus today was about, you know, the brain and stuff. But what I wanted people to visually see is the data that I have been focusing on so far is immune markers in response to exercise while breathing oxygen. One of the things that has come up with this is that, uh, or from this is um, we're trying to see if uh, we're gonna bring in some equipment to measure uh, blood flow and circulation in the brain and maybe um, some type of biofeedback because anecdotally people tell me, I just think more clearly the days I do the exercise with oxygen my energy is more stable throughout the day. 
and I'm, I'm more with it versus when I don't do it, I might have, it would feel like mild brain fog, even though it's normal. And um, what I'll show you here now is um, this is data. We now have, as you can see now, our uh, method, the methods have improved. There's new laboratories that have come out recently and we can measure way more immune parameters. And um, what I'm adding into this is I'll be doing telomere length and um, I'll switch, um, when I'm done with this, I'll switch that paper about the hyperbaric oxygen therapy on telomeres because there's a number of flaws in that paper, but I'm watching all these people just jump on HBOT without really understanding what it is that they're doing and what, what the value would be. But essentially what I want people to see is um, this is a response that you would say is in out, like on a healthy side, an outlier, like a positive outlier, if you will. This is a response that most people get. And um, so the main point is many of the cells, they're so far low when they respond. Just remember I was giving you that number 1600? Mm -hmm. Many of these markers are, are pretty low. Now, some of these markers here, so like um, these guys, this you have to increase this by 10. So that's, that's, that's total white blood cell count. This is total T lymphocytes. So this you have to increase by 10. Um, these are beta cells here. So this particular individual, he has a beta cell that's way below normal. And uh, beta cells are the cells that produce the antibody. So think of it as they make the proteins that then attach to a bad guy. And then your T lymphocytes go and kill that bad guy. And um, this individual did not respond to immunotherapy for his cancer. And when I looked at it, I said, no one ever looked at your beta cell levels. So I just want to bring this point out. I can't tell you how many patients go see an oncologist or another doctor and they get put on a checkpoint inhibitor or an immunotherapy drug. So that drug's supposed to enhance the ability of your immune system to fight the cancer. But the patients never get their immune system tested. So this is a guy that's got low B cells. The doctor's solution was to give him a drug that requires the B cells to be working. Well, the drug won't work. So why would you have a guy do a therapy for four months when you could have done this test and within a week to two weeks, you would have known the drug won't work. And right now, medicine, that's patients, this is what happens to people. They put on a drug and no one took the time to even see if it will help them. And the doctor's going by a study that says, oh, the drug works. <laughs> but remember, a studies that are published, that's not a guarantee that your body works that way. There could be individual genetic differences, some, some biochemical differences, you know, microbiome differences, and then it won't work. And instead of someone suffering for four months and getting worse, they could have found it out right away. Um, let me see over here. Um, like to put some things in example, like you see some of these markers, like if you multiply these by 10, you're way above these levels. Uh, so just some quick findings on the um, cancer patients have much lower uh, cytotoxic T lymphocytes. And then their main point here is that um, there's some big differences in immune responses between healthy people and uh, cancer patients. The findings we got from this though, is that you want low oxygen to add muscle faster. Uh, we're the only center in the world right now that we've been able to find. I actually have patients that have gained 10 to 30 pounds of muscle while they're getting treated for cancer here. I don't know any center in the world that can make that claim 
discharged recently a 60 year old guy. Um, when he left, he was doing 100 pound dumbbell rows and had gained 10 pounds of muscle. Tom, what's the uh, what's the load on this? Is it every day, twice a day, three times a week? Like, what's like the efficacy on this in terms of like uh, prescription? So, okay, it depends on if, if you're looking at the original research from Germany. Um, they only had guys going 15 minutes, you know, uh, three to five times a week. So very, let's just say, very low volume. But those guys didn't really look at. Um, their approach was really more about like their focus was on the oxygen more than the movement. So they, what they had guys like doing really set that they, they patients that were very frail that may be way below average in strength level. And they may just have them like gripping a hand grip dynamometer, you know, like 10 times breathing oxygen, waiting a minute or two, gripping it some more. Or they may have people just barely walking on a treadmill, like one mile an hour, very, very low function people. So when I came along and started doing all this stuff, you know, my thinking is, you know, don't walk if you could run and, and don't run if you could be sprinting, you know, like we want to push the human body because in terms of, um, and you know, you got a disease process and you're trying to reverse or fight this disease process. This is not a casual stroll in the park. It's not like, oh, let me stop and smell the roses type of thing. This is like you're fighting to stay alive. It's a very different approach. And unfortunately, most people, what happens is once they're sick, everybody babies them and nurtures them. It's like, oh, be careful. Don't push yourself too hard. And they're not considering the fact that they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything to stimulate an adaptive response that gets them what they want. They should be pushing harder. Now, granted, you still got to recover. We can measure markers and you know, we can test you like how you sore. Then we can modulate the training load or, or volume or intensity or, or, or all of the above. Um, so what I have now, um, we have target goals that when people come here, they are going to burn 1000 calories in one cardio session. And they may start at like a hundred, you know? So that means I have to progress them. But I can tell you now we've got this dialed in where we have uh, within five days, we have people hitting a thousand calories in a workout. And, uh, but they're doing other therapies to enhance the recovery, right? So it's not like they're just doing the oxygen, they're doing the pulse electromagnetic field therapy or the PEMF, they're doing full body light therapies. Uh, we got all these peptides we're IVing into them to make them like superhuman. Um, so they control inflammation and stuff. I uh, just had a, a woman come in recently. She did not have cancer, but she had a lot of, of uh, pain issues. And in five days, we got her to a thousand calories and um, she messaged me. She's like, I was so skeptical because of my history of pain and all the doctors I've seen and, you know, couldn't get results. And then I hear about you and, and listen to all these people say all these wonderful things. And she's like, I don't know if that's even possible. And then when I told her day one, you're going to burn a thousand calories. She's like, this guy's crazy. And like the crazy part is true, but it's crazy in a good way. <laughs> Yeah, just look at my shirts. <laughs> That's right. Like I got, I tried to live the image. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, no. It's, uh, I mean, the Ewot stuff's, uh, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in this. I think this is a really interesting piece, oh. and it's not. I mean, the only issue uh, really comes down to just being able to supply the technology to people, um, and that's, I know, been kind of a difficult piece. Yeah. So, well, I'll tell you right now. Um, I, what I'm seeing right now is there's all these guys have good intentions, but they're not really passionate about biological outcome. 
So they're looking at EWAT is like a commercial business venture. Like I throw some money into it, going to build it, and then I'm going to sell it off. And I'm looking at this like, no, this is what I live and breathe. This is what I'm going to die doing, right? It's a whole different sort of approach. So I think at some point, I'm going to get a bunch of guys together, and we're just going to make an equipment manufacturing company. Because as I'm seeing all this stuff that's happening, I realize you have guys with good ideas, but they don't have the physiological experience to know when something works and doesn't work. And as oh, there's one point I, did, I failed to make earlier, and I think this is pretty critical. Um, so this is me at rest, in other words, right before workout. This workout here, I put this in just for you, John. Um, this says after RT, this was a power uh, athlete workout. The one I stole from Bryce that you had him do. So <laughs> what's hilarious is I've known Tom 20 years. Uh, we've talked endlessly about training. And then he's like, so Bryce uh, Walcott, who's one of our block one coaches, works for Tom. And so they're training partners. And so Tom's like, when I see him, he's like, man, I've been training with Bryce. Bryce has been killing it. We've been doing this and this and this. And he's going through all the training. It's really intelligent. It's well thought out. I'm really just, I'm I'm really impressed by the training that Bryce is doing. And I was like, oh yeah, well, you know, that's grindstone that's one of our that's one of my training <laughs> programs and tom was i didn't know that i didn't know yeah, that he didn't know it. and like he was like he's like dude it's really well thought out i like how it lays this and it follows all these different like you know models and then and i'm like you fucking asshole you follow our training program and like i've known you all these years uh like uh it, it was it was a funny funny moment but i mean uh you know like I adhere to the research. I know it works. We know it doesn't. I mean, dude, you're as sharp on this exercise phase as anybody I've ever met. So, I mean, just the, the amount of volumes of talking that we've had, I mean, you know, it fits with everything in terms of undulating periodization, accumulation models. I mean, this, I mean, you know, PAP. I mean, it just, it, it, it's everything that I used when I played in the NFL and then I just am able to distill it down. And so Tom's like hitting PRs, doing things he hasn't done. And is like, I don't know, the training's great. <laughs> <laughs> So let me share a couple of things here. So, um, so this is, uh, I don't remember the exact, the actual like exercises and movement patterns, but you know, we've been one of your workouts that was posted. I'm guessing, I think this was like a mixed upper body, lower body day. Cause I don't remember like yeah. any special bench or anything, but the point I want to make, this is without oxygen. This is just like say lifting weights, if you will. And, and, you know, whatever warm up protocols. So this would have been like, I don't know, um, 30 to 45 minute workout, I guess the timeline in here and look at all the increases, just the strength training alone did. And then right after the strength training workout. So I basically had my blood drawn here. So that's how I get, um, so I had blood drawn here and that's these values Had blood draw against these values. Um, then I did an EWAT workout and I get the blood. This is right after the workout. So this after weight training, would have been before the EWAT. Is and it better to do the EWAT after strength training, you think, or you think away from the strength training? So, you know, I don't have a, a research-based answer for that, just so that you know what um, this particular day. So um, the difference, what I did here is I have all this data on EWAT by itself. I had no data on resistance training and all these immune parameters so this particular day, the reason why I went pre and resistance training, because I need a clean resistance training data by itself. What every patient here, what we do is we have them do the EWAT first and resistance training second. 
So at some point, you know, I'll swap these two, you know, training training areas around and see what happens. But here's the thing that um, what I liked though is that there's definitely um, um, you could see like in terms of these cells that fight disease and cancer, et cetera, um, even infectious agents, you could see that this is a pretty long period of time at their high. And one of the things that many people don't realize is that um, your natural killer cells and a number of other, let's say lymphocytes, they're in your tissue, they're in your spleen or in other parts of your body. So if you don't move enough, you don't get these cells out of the tissue into the blood where they could move around the whole body and kill stuff in other places. So as an example, um, when we were doing all the microbiome analysis with this stuff early on, we could positively identify bacteria from the urinary tract in the blood, bacteria from the digestive tract in the blood, bacteria from the mouth in the blood. And we realized that you know, when there's microscopic abrasion, so let's just say something simple, you're flossing too hard, you're brushing your teeth too hard, that microscopic abrasion in gingiva, you know, bacteria in the mouth make their way through the tissue into circulation. And then what happens now is I do a blood draw and I could do a saliva test and I could positively, you know, using uh, genetic testing, I could tell you this bacteria in the blood is from the mouth or this bacteria in the urinary tract is, for, is you know, is, and that's in the blood. So we could do the EWAT and then we could see, well, do we kill off these bacteria in the blood? And we found that it did. That was all the organisms that we showed earlier on. So one of the benefits of exercise in general is that it allows your immune system to constantly come out. So let's say you work out once a day versus three times a day, there would be three times more opportunity for your immune system to come out and do something. And so one of the thoughts we have that's more recent is I think that um, basically people with disease, people with sickness, they should train more frequently, maybe not necessarily like the volume and like an hour, maybe it's 10 or 15 minutes at a time. But think of it, if you had someone that's got a serious illness and they're training eight times a day, 10 times a day, that's eight or 10 times a day that we're stimulating their immune system to do something. And part of, um, I didn't focus on neutrophils here, but neutrophils are the cells that would repair damage. So like, let's say if you have osteoarthritis, there's also macrophages that are also related to um, rheumatoid and osteoarthritis. But in, in our future work, we're going to be looking at how do we use exercise to stimulate tissue repair, brain mapping. Um, and this is stuff that, you know, it should have been the basis for COVID treatments. Like, why would you do a vaccine that may be effective against one thing when you could be doing exercise and benefiting everything? You know, again, just a different strategy when someone's focused on optimal biological outcomes versus a financial interest or agenda or something. So that covers the PowerPoint stuff. Um, you guys want to ask me any questions on this? Or should I translate or transition over to the, e, the HBOT with the um, telomere stuff? Yeah, no, no. Let's go look at the uh, the the HBOT with the telomeres. I'd like to quick, get a quick note, Tom, if you wouldn't mind sending the presentation, this is something we can link up in the yeah. show notes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, let's jump in and look at the HBOT, uh, which is the hyperbaric oxygen treatments. Yeah. EWOT is exercise with oxygen training. So uh, if you want to look at the HBOT in, the, in 2020, um, really cool study came out of Israel that talked about uh, not only, yeah, here it is. So we'll link this up. So this is the anti-aging 
if you guys follow me on Instagram at John Wellborn, and I actually put a screen cap of this uh, study. So basically they did, uh, 60 daily sessions and they looked at um, peripheral blood cells and they looked at telomere length and then like, senescence. Now, the way that these guys looked at stuff here, um, they used a PCR-based method. And the one thing I do want to point out, let me see if they could, I could show you. Um, okay, let's see if I click on this, if it makes it bigger. Okay, so this is basically, see how it says relative telomere length? Mm -hmm. So let's just say, um, oh, I don't know, let's say that a million cells and they're measuring the telomere lengths in these cells the range could be quite a large, like you could have some very short telomeres and you could have some very long telomeres. So when you do PCR, you're taking all this wide range of short and long, you're putting them together and you're getting what they're calling relative. I have to look into methods and see how exactly how they define relative. Technically an average would be misleading because the um, telomere length is going to be like, it's not a, a normal binomial distribution or bell-shaped curve, the telomeres when they're when they're measured is going to be like it's going to be shifted to one side of the curve. So average is going to be a biased result. So technically, when you look at telomeres, you want a median. In other words, like what was the most common, you know, or the midpoint of something there. And what you're not seeing though is this. Let's just say that um if all the telomeres got longer, let's say every single telomere, no matter how short or long they were, gets 20% longer, let's say, this is a great treatment. But what if the treatment only affected the long telomeres and not the short telomeres? That translates to there may not be any improvement in outcome because you're still limited by the shortest telomeres. So what we're doing now is we're looking at the lengths of the telomeres in all the cells. So we're getting thousands of times more data than these guys did. And we're looking at it in it, we're looking at, let's say, all these telomere lengths, and we're looking at it in a wider range of cells. Because think of it as that um, you're going to be limited by whatever was the weakest link. But if you don't know all the weak links, you're just averaging everything together, it gives you a visual bias effect. So you go like, oh, my average or my relative telomere length is improving. But it's an improving in a way that actually produces a functional outcome, meaning like with this data, they didn't show like, did you fight infection better, right? Or do you run faster or, or do you live longer, right? The, the scope of the study wasn't designed to include those parameters. But if you actually, the, the reason why like someone wants to do this is because no one's doing treatments to say, oh, I want my telomeres longer. They're using a telomeres longer because they're expecting another benefit, like I'm going to live longer or I'm going to have less disease or something over here. And what I want to do is actually measure these other endpoints to see if that does it translate. So, um, so as an example, um, do we actually eliminate senescent cells? That would be, and then does that translate to now we're lifting more weights in the gym because we have less senescent cells holding back our cartilage? Uh, producing cells, you know, or if there was um, someone with an infection, do they now like beat Lyme disease faster because they don't have senescent immune cells interfering with their ability? Uh, in the case of like brain stuff, um, what we know is that 
senescent cells hold us back in multiple ways. And whatever we can do to remove those senescent cells from a treatment, it's not an instant impact, but there's definitely a long-term impact that's pretty substantial. And so what I'm just uh, sharing with you guys is um, what this study shows is that by doing hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you improve relative telomere lengths for various cell lines and it reduces uh, senescence in the body. But it's kind of like uh, the tip of the iceberg. Now we need to do more research and see more precisely where are these improvements occurring and do those improvements translate out to something? And, and one of the limitations, you know, with, with um, these oxygen-based therapies, whether it's ozone, hyperbaric oxygen, um, or oxygen itself, uh, is there's no movement. And one of the reasons why I like exercise with oxygen therapy is it just fits what we see as a, as a consensus sitting and lying are risk factors for almost every disease. So now in my mind, to develop a therapy where you have to sit or lie, that's kind of like going backwards before you go forwards. It'd be like if we could have a tank, like if you could have a hyperbaric tank where you could actually exercise or do something inside of it. Right. You know, like Tom has me, uh, when I go in the hyperbarics, like squeezing, like uh, uh, silly putty and like trying to do grip stuff and like, you know, move my ankles and maybe bring some bands in and start doing some banded stuff while I'm in the hyperbarics. So the, the, the main challenge we had, so you know what's really funny is in the 80s, I was at Penn State, and we had this uh, environmental chamber, as it was called back then. And this thing looked like um, looked like a bank vault. Like imagine an old-style bank vault with these, these doors, like, I don't know, two to six feet deep. I don't remember exactly how deep it was. It was like a big deal to get in and out. But we could control partial pressure of all these gases. We control relative humidity, barometric pressure, temperature, like a lot of different environmental variables. And at that point, you know, all I cared about was getting stronger. And I'm like, will this help me squat more right now? No. All right. This stuff is boring. That was my mind. <laughs> you know, if it's not helping me bench squat or deadlift or clean more Then it's unnecessary information. And so uh, now that I have a better understanding of the physiology of this stuff, now I wish I had that hype that up environmental chamber here because yeah. I can do all this other stuff. I will say that, uh, I found it, I tried testing uh, breathing and oxygen while lifting weights, I found it very challenging. It's difficult to get a good rhythm, you know, breathing, you know, I, like, you know, I suppose breathe into the nose, out to the mouth while you're like, you know, trying to lift. So um, that's why I wanted to test the two things separately because it's, it just seemed easy to get a cyclical movement pattern, like even walking on a treadmill or something while you're breathing the oxygen versus uh, lifting, especially like, um, Think of it like if you're doing something with dumbbells, uh, you know, putting them down and is the hose long enough, putting them back to the ground, you know. I, uh, I think part of the, the benefit in terms of what you're doing is actually the cross-patterning uh, movement. We know that, you know, from the Caldeet stuff that you can reset the nervous system, which is basically marching in place. That the, um, God, what's it called when somebody walks? It's the, the bipedal nature. It's uh, begins to the nay. It's not um, accentuating. Uh, fuck, I'm fucking this word up, but basically that, like that patterning of like, right, you know, right arm. Back. Yeah. Like, uh, like basically like the walking, whether it be like marching in place, walking like that piece, whether you're on an assault bike or like walking on a treadmill that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that resets the nervous system. And I think that maybe breathing in the oxygen, there's some effect of that. 
um, where you're almost like moving. And that's why I like, I like, uh, on the oxygen deal, I like the assault bike or walking or, you know, jogging on the treadmill or on the, um, true form, uh, mm-hmm. better than maybe doing it in some other things. Cause I've tried to do it with like pushups. Uh, I've tried to do it with like air squats and just a few different things, but I really like the assault bike and those, uh, aerobic, uh, deal. Cause I feel like that cross patterning almost has like a, somewhat of like a pumping effect within the body. And I don't necessarily know how to describe it, but I noticed the difference in that way. Get that Versa climber down there. Oh, fucking, you can have that <laughs> fucking thing. Uh, Literally, I don't, don't No, Are I'm, you serious? No, I'm not giving it away. It. <sighs> we got to keep it just for Ivan Drago. <clears throat> it's funny, I sold two of them and I forgot to take the listing down and some guy like hit me up and I was like, uh, he like tried to deal with me and I just upped the price on him. I'm like, he's like, would you take this? I'm like, no, I'll take 3000 so no, nah. take and, that number, and double it. Yeah, fuck off. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so I um at some point I would like to get um some isokinetic equipment in here. I used that stuff years ago with Mel Sif, and I, it's kind of like when he's I'm like one of these days I'm gonna get some more stuff, and then you know now I don't even know it's like 10, 15 years later, and uh, you know haven't gotten it because there's like a million other projects we got going on, but I would like to look at um a way of uh, what I like about the isokinetic is, you know, you could pull or push as hard as you can every rep, right? Sure. And then as you fatigue, like it'll match the force. And so I would like to look at some of that. Well, there's uh, there's companies that have, uh, we just picked up a flywheel. And so uh, through yeah. Kabuki, so yeah. we've been messing with the flywheel stuff, which is, is pretty interesting where like as you fatigue, the problem is, is like after you go hard, that eccentric man is, uh, it's something, it, it's pretty cool. I think that there's some neat applications for that. Yeah. So, so if you pull hard, is the eccentric the same force coming back or is yeah. it great? Yeah. Well, you can load it with different weights. So like you can overload the weight where if you pull harder, the eccentric is pulling you down more. Uh, but I think, um, and I have no way of measuring it. I mean, you, you would almost need a, a way to measure but just based off of the feel, you can kind of weight it to where it's pretty even, but it's really dependent upon the movement. Like, uh, like I have one weight I've used on the arms. Uh, the one that I set up on the, on the squat, I had to load it all, but I definitely found the more dynamic I was out of the hole, the harder it was pulling me back down. So I think that there's a way to play with the weights in such a way where you could almost make it, you know, zero for, you know, uh, you know, zero, zero kind of a deal, like a net gain. But the other one, when you load it, like, you know, it feels like it's pulling you down more than you're pushing out. Hmm, nice. And it's um, Mel had built an isotonic and isokinetic device. And it sounds kind of like what you just described. It was similar. It's like you could add weight to it and it still had that isokinetic aspect as well. And um, he was going up. I mean, he had a bunch of uh, engineer kids that were, you know, super smart trying to prove themselves. So, whatever crazy stuff he had in his head, he'd say, build it. And they come up with all kinds of stuff. It was, it was pretty cool. Awesome. Well, dude, uh, uh, I think that's pretty good to digest for today. So Tom, if, uh, you know, I know you're not real big on Instagram. Uh, it's caused into wellness at <laughs> cause into wellness. And I'm about the only person that tags you. You probably have about six posts. Cause I know you're, <laughs> you're so busy in the, in, you know, in the lab, in the, in the clinic kicking ass. But if uh, people want to reach out, I mean, obviously it's cause uh, if people want to get through the website and if you want to send an email and reach out to Tom, uh, you can reference this podcast. You can reference me and, uh, you know, Tom will probably get back to you or somebody in his office. So, dude, thanks so much for connecting with us on Power Athlete Radio, Dr. Inquidon. Oh, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, Tom. Bye. All right, bye.